Welcome to Crashing the War Party, where me and my compatriot Daniel Larison are two refugees from the post 9-11 media wars, having spent the better part of the last 20 years questioning the elite media's slavish support for the establishment foreign policy, its expanding national security state, and military-industrial complex. Today, we are going to be interviewing Espanyar Batman Gelich on his research breaking down the impact of U.S. sanctions on Iran. But first, I want to talk about something that's become a real bee in my bonnet over the last week or so. The media, carrying water for the Washington liberal internationalists and to some extent the hawkish Republican leadership, have taken a criticizing any skepticism over the increasing confrontational approach to Russia. In other words, just like they did in the run-up to the invasion of Iraq in 2003, the mainstream media is crowding out any alternative views on NATO expansion or Russia's position on Ukraine, and instead have framed this as yet another defense of democracy against authoritarianism. This has led to some ugliness in op-ed pages and across social media, including attacks on Tucker Carlson and other populist conservatives who have peeled off from their fellow conservatives to question why it is in the U.S. interest to defend Ukraine militarily. In one Washington Post column, writer Greg Sargent all but called the Carlson position, as he calls it, fascist, saying his stance is perhaps better, quote, understood as alignment with a kind of right-wing internationale, a loose international alliance of authoritarian nationalists who despise liberal internationalist commitments, end quote. Others on social media have suggested that by siding with Putin, which it is not clear Tucker Carlson ever seriously did, he should be tried for treason or at the very least should register as a foreign agent. So Dan, since we have consistently advocated for restraint and openly questioned whether NATO expansion was unnecessarily confrontational and wonder why we must defend Ukraine, even if it means going to war, does that make us fringe or worse? Are we fascists? I, well, probably. I mean, I, I assume that that's uh, how we would get coded in any case. But uh, no, I. We're, of course, we're, we're not. But uh, when we look at the, the sort of media hysteria around these sorts of questions uh, and then the, the, the push for conformism on these questions, uh, it, it really does call to mind uh, the atmosphere that we saw before the invasion of Iraq. Now, and, and this, and the strange thing about that is we're, we're not, no one's actually proposing right now that the United States actually go to war. It, it's a debate over the degree of support that should be provided to the Ukrainians in the event of a conflict or in the event of escalation, I should say. And, and so the, the hysteria is even more ridiculous in a way because it's not actually over what the US uh, itself will do in terms of intervention. Uh, but but the, the same sorts of uh, smear tactics are being employed. Uh, I'm sure you remember, uh, as, as do our listeners, uh, what it was like in the run-up to the Iraq war, where if you expressed doubts about the wisdom of launching an illegal attack on another country uh, over dubious claims, uh, that you were therefore, quote-unquote, pro-dictator, or you, you, you hated freedom or you hated the United States. And so, and, and so we, we're used to seeing these kinds of attacks because I, I think it's, it's sort of the easy smear uh, for hawks to use because they know uh, that that then puts people on the defensive. It ends up distracting people from the main argument, and it turns it into a contest of values uh, in which the, the anti-war side or the, the side that doesn't want confrontation uh, has to then 
spend however long trying to to prove that no really we're we're not uh, what you say we are and so it's a it's a a useful way to distract from the the main issue uh, and and also to try to defame people uh, but i think it, it's also been used so many times that it's not really as effective as it used to be uh, it used to be that if you were uh, attacked in this way it could actually really harm your career it could it could derail your position uh, and and defeat your side in the argument uh, before the argument was even had and i don't think that's the case anymore people are a little more cynical about these sorts of accusations because they've seen how frequently and how how uh, opportunistically they're used uh, to push a particular agenda. And, uh, and I think uh, Peter Beinart actually wrote a piece about uh, what, what he called uh, the, the cancel culture of nationalism uh, recently, where he was comparing the same uh, the same things we're talking about uh, to the, the pre-Iraq invasion hysteria. Uh, and it's it's the same sort of uh, pressure to conform and to sort of fall in line uh, that we we've seen before, and I, you know, I'm hopeful that people are are wising up to it and they they can see that it's not uh, it's just not credible. Uh, and and whatever other arguments people have with Carlson about domestic politics, for instance, uh, that they they ought to be focusing on what he gets wrong on the domestic politics, because I, you know, in terms of the foreign policy argument, he's not saying that many things uh, that, that we would disagree with, I think. Uh, now, as for, as for why he's saying them, he might have different reasons. Uh, you know, I think, for instance, Carlson is probably more interested in confrontation with China than either of us is. And he, and he sees all of this as a distraction from the real conflict with China. And so, you know, th- there, I would certainly say that he's on the wrong track, but but that's a different story from it's saying that story. he's um, that he's simply an authoritarian. Um, so it's you know it, it's there, there's an effort to try to conflate different things uh, where people have genuine disagreements about domestic politics, and they try to map those on to their foreign policy disagreements, and it, it doesn't always work. Yeah, I, I think what bothers me the most about this story and what has, has really raised my hackles is that there was this attempt to draw a connection between um, the January 6th so-called insurrectionists and the what you know this guy in, in Washington Post was calling, you know, the the Carlson stance or the Carlsonian stance. And I'm pointing specifically to another Washington Post article that said, oh, the which suggested that the only other conservatives who were taking this position that were questioning whether or not it is in U.S. interest to defend Ukraine militarily were fringy um, conservative right wingers like Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert. Uh, Congressman Gosar, and these are all people who are a watchword for craziness, conspiratorialists, uh, con- you know, January 6th insurrectionists. And so it was obviously a dog whistle to the Washington Post liberal uh, internationalist blobby readership that if you even question this, that somehow you will be aligning yourself with weirdos on the right, right. wing. And and as a result, the only acceptable 
conservatives, again, are the, the never Trumpers, the, the more hawkish people uh, who are also never Trumpers are never Tucker Carlsoners like Stephen Hayes, who was just hired by N- MS or at NBC after leaving Fox in, you know, in protest to Tucker Carlson or Liz Cheney, who has been uh, a big never Trumper. And, you know, all these people have been brought into the bosom of uh, the, the, the Atlantic, you know, new Republic liberal bosom um, and anybody else who that leaves us, you know, that leaves the people at responsible statecraft, antiwar.com, uh, the, the American conservative to a certain extent, code pink. I mean, everybody who has been consistently uh, in opposition to the U.S. war policy are somehow now considered uh, suspect. And that that really bothered me. It was such a cynical uh, ploy. And I agree with you, Dan. I don't know if that exactly works, but the fact that they attempted to exploit that uh, really bothered me. Right. Well, and it's, I mean, it's a, a sort of guilt by association tactic uh, that, that we, we know going uh, way back. And it, it's, a, it's a way of, of trying to dodge the, the main policy argument. Uh, it's, it's a way of, of making it about the people making the argument rather than about the, the substance of the case. And, and I think the reason why hawks so frequently resort to these kinds of smear tactics, and we've seen these smears directed against uh, very well-respected credentialed Russia experts too, uh, and you know, quite, you know, quite apart from whatever is going on uh, in the GOP, you, you have people who are, are very capable and qualified experts who are smeared as supposed agents of the Kremlin uh, because they propo- propose uh, a more conciliatory or at least less confrontational policy towards Russia than the one that we've had. Uh, and, and so and the reason that that keeps happening is that I think the, the actual substantive case for a hawkish and confrontational policy is extremely weak. And, and I think the hawks at some level know that it's weak because they have to keep trying to make these issues about something much bigger than the issues themselves. So you see them arguing about Ukraine, but they'll say it's not just about Ukraine, it's about the entire international order and our entire alliance system and 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 democracy itself is at stake. And, and so they, they have to keep inflating the significance of the crisis uh, in order to justify the kinds of aggressive policies that they favor. Because if you were to try to justify those policies on the basis of our interests in Ukraine alone, you couldn't do it. Uh, and, and so because... I, I think they know their case is so weak. They, they feel they have to attack the people. The messenger. Um, yeah, they have, to, they have to attack the messenger rather than address uh, the substance. And so that's, that's I think that's why we're seeing what we're seeing uh, so much over the last uh, weeks and months. Yeah. And, you know, another thing you had you brought up, uh, Tucker's motives. And I, I can't get inside of his head either. But I like to point out, and we had a great piece by Jack uh, Hunter on Responsible Statecraft last week on this issue, that a lot of these Republican conservatives or just conservatives, populists, nationalists, whatever you want to call them, you know, they've been talking about their skepticism of global policing, endless wars, nation building, all the way since the, the Trump administration, since Donald Trump made it okay to talk about this. I mean, he won in part in 2016 because he had talked 
very vigorously about Iraq and how it was a failure and how that he as president wasn't going to get us in any new wars and how he he felt like, yes, we, we need to have a strong military and defense, but we don't need to be starting any new wars and we certainly don't need to be policing the world. And, you know, think whatever you want about whether or not he fought, fell, uh, followed through with those promises, but he got a lot of support because he had his finger on the pulse. And I just, my gut is that a lot of those people, a lot of those conservatives among the base of the Republican Party haven't changed their views on that. They still feel as suspicious of U.S. foreign policy in that regard as they did you know, over four years ago or in 2016. And so to, to act as though it's only a, a fringe and that these people are an anomaly is really, um, you know, mis, it's misjudging the, the temperature of the right today. And I think they're, I think the Republicans are going to get a big surprise come, you know, whether it be 2022 or 2024, when they realize that their base doesn't want to hear all of this uh, red meat about going to war with this country or that country or spilling American uh, blood for other people's problems and their fights, uh, their regional issues. And, um, you know, and I'm, I'm specifically talking now about Republicans and their ha handmaidens like the National Review. And I know you and I talked about this earlier offline, Dan, this idea that Germany hasn't been altogether in lockstep with the United States. And Rich Lowry had a piece in the National Review last week basically suggesting that they were the weak link, um, that they weren't towing the line, and we can't count on them. And I tweeted something to the effect of like, wow, this feels like 2003 all over again when we were making fun of the French and calling them freedom fries and all this stuff. Um, because they weren't doing what we wanted to do. They weren't in our little coalition of the willing. And I find that so retrograde that these Cold War warriors like the National Review are still trying to um, goad people and cajole them and smear them into uh, conforming to some uh, aggressive uh, warmongering foreign policy. Right. Well, and it's it's one of the the strange things, and we saw it during the Iraq War debate, where where Germany was castigated for being a bad ally because they didn't want to uh, launch an any legal war, and so so people were actually bashing Germany for not wanting to start an illegal war, uh, which was very strange. Uh, and, and and we have this attitude again now that the Germans are somehow a bad ally because they're not interested in helping to stoke conflict in Eastern Europe. Uh, when, of course, I mean, Germany, for its own obvious historic reasons, because of the, the terrible crimes that the German government committed during World War II, uh, has, uh, in their view, a, a certain responsibility not to contribute to those sorts of conflicts today. Uh, and in fact, it's, it's one of their basic principles of policy that they do not export weapons to countries engaged in active conflicts. And that is that is their principle. And it's one that they've adhered to. And I, you know, if only we had a principle like that, uh, we we would be fueling fewer wars. Uh, the the idea the the assumption behind the criticism is that if you don't supply weapons to Ukraine right now, uh, that you are taking the side of the Russians, which is not necessarily. I mean, that's not that's not true. 
and it's not uh, it's not accurate not an accurate reflection of, of why the Germans are ref refusing to provide these weapons. They're refusing to provide them because they are not interested in in encouraging escalation. They're not interested in further militarizing the situation, uh, and they are trying to use their relatively better relations with the Russians to intercede and try to come to some sort of compromise. Um, and, and people can, can laugh at the Germans and say that, oh, you know, they, they don't understand how power works. They don't understand how international relations work anymore. <laughs> they've, they've forgotten about all these things. But, you know, I think they, because they suffered uh, a, a massive defeat and, and their country was torn in half by the occupying powers uh, after they lost the war that they started, uh, they, they've actually learned from that and they've learned that these sorts of policies bring nations to grief and they're not interested in going down that path again and that's and I, I think that's that's a good thing that's, that's that's something we should be encouraging uh and if, you know if if we were to take a less militaristic approach to the world i think that would also be a, a very wise uh, and and uh, welcome improvement and so we we should and and to come back to the iraq war for a minute when we think about the debate that was going on before the invasion, uh, we, we, there was this idea that all of our allies had to fall in line behind what we wanted, when in fact the, the allies that did us or that tried to do us a real favor were the ones that tried to counsel us out of making this terrible mistake. And so the, the French and the Germans uh, were resisting our leadership, I guess you could call it. But if we had listened to them, if we had heeded their advice, we would have avoided would have avoided making one of the biggest foreign policy uh, mistakes and and committing one of the biggest crimes of the 21st century, and that's that's something that should be borne in mind when we hear the Germans counseling us against more aggressive policies today. Right, and instead we have headlines from the Wall Street Journal, and yes, the Wall Street Journal is traditionally more conservative, but you know I've saw I've seen headlines almost exact, uh, identically to this one in the Washington Post last week, U.S. allies wonder if they can count on Germany and Russia-Ukraine crisis. So we've gone back to 2003, in which we are trying to humiliate, embarrass our allies into taking our side and rushing into a confrontational situation without heeding any advice to the contrary. So we didn't learn from 2003, and one wonders if it would take a massive defeat that would uh, include deaths of millions of Americans and our infrastructure and our cities leveled for us to actually understand and take seriously some of the foreign policy decisions that we make. Well, that's a it is a a problem that we have that I think we've, we're so used to fighting wars in other people's countries where we're so used to, to the extent that we, we suffer losses, uh, they're, they're relatively much lower than the losses suffered by the people in those countries. Uh, we, we, I think we really have forgotten to the extent that we ever knew it, uh, what the, the costs of war really are. And, and aside from our experience with the civil war, we've, we've never had anything like that on our own territory. And so we we really don't have a full appreciation as a country uh, for what uh, war entails and, and for the, the terrible 
price uh, that people pay in war. And, and I think that's why you have this kind of blithe, uh, macho posturing from so much of the political class and for, even from many analysts, where the idea is that you know, we're all supposed to be uh, advocating for more militaristic options uh, as a way of showing how tough and resolute we are. Uh, when, when these have routinely led to great tragedies and, and crimes uh, throughout history, and when we we forget that at our peril. Our guest today is Yara Batman Gelage. She is the founder and CEO of the Burson Bazaar Foundation, a think tank focused on economic diplomacy, economic development, and economic justice in the Middle East and Central Asia. He has published peer-reviewed research on Iranian political economy, social history, and public health, as well as commentary on Iranian politics and economics. He is also a visiting fellow with the Middle East and North Africa program at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Daniel. It's great to be here. Yeah, we, we appreciate you coming on. Uh, I was very interested to read the, the recent uh, research you've been doing. Uh, you recently published a new paper as part of the Sanctions and Security Research Project on sanctions and inflation in Iran. Uh, in that paper, you described sanctions as an inflation weapon. Can you explain how sanctions create inflationary pressures? Yeah, so the, the purpose of the paper was really to kind of um, do two things that are uh, usually kept separate when we talk about the study of what sanctions do in target countries. Uh, studies of the economic impacts of sanctions tend to be pretty high level. They look at kind of what sanctions do to a country's uh, trade environment, to investment, to uh, the domestic economy and uh, different phenomenon like uh, inflation. And then you also have a set of studies that look at humanitarian harms and try and understand what sanctions uh, are doing for ordinary people in terms of their uh, access to food and medicine and their general economic welfare. But you rarely have an effort to connect the two. And one of the things that I try and do in this case study is identify what I feel is the single most significant and prevalent impact of sanctions, which is uh, this high rates of inflation that we see in countries that are subject to broad sanctions programs, and connect that to a humanitarian harm. Think of that as something that is affecting ordinary people. Because, of course, if food and medicine are getting significantly more expensive in addition to other goods, and your, let's say, wages are stagnant, or you have lost your job in the course of uh, the economic uh, kind of downturn that is experienced by countries undergoing sanctions, your welfare has gotten worse. So how exactly uh, do sanctions contribute to inflation? Well, typically, when we talk about the inflationary effects of sanctions, uh, sanctions proponents and uh, people looking at kind of sanctions cases tend to look at the ways in which the decisions made by the government targeted by sanctions cause inflation. And the classic example here is that uh, usually sanctions make it very difficult for governments that have been targeted to balance their budgets. They are losing uh, sources of valuable revenue. For example, in the case of Iran, sanctions significantly reduced oil exports. Oil exports were a major source of uh, government revenue that went into those budgets. And in order to finance those budget deficits that emerge, uh, governments turn to their central banks and they basically ask their central banks to print money. 
And this kind of uh, monetary policy leads to um, uh, an increase in inflation. But that is only one of the drivers of inflation. And, and what I focus on in the case study are things that are happening outside of the targeted country that lead to increases in the price of, uh, in this case in particular, essential goods like food and medicine. And here I basically focus on three things. The first is uh, disruptions to supply chains. So when you impose sanctions on a country, there are typically fewer suppliers that are willing to support trade with that country, sell goods to that country. Those suppliers have fewer logistics partners that are willing to put those goods on their ships or on their trains or uh, their tractor trailers and get them into uh, the country that's been targeted. And in addition to the supply chain uh, dynamics, even when there are viable channels to get goods into a country and suppliers are willing, we also see breakdowns in financial channels. So the banks that are necessary to process payments related to trade um, uh, either uh, decide to stop serving that country because of the complications of sanctions in terms of administrative burden and legal risks. Uh, if they were to make a mistake and inadvertently work with a designated entity, um, or if a bank does decide to continue to support transactions with the target country, they will charge a premium to do so. And those additional costs get passed on uh, to the end user. The final driver of inflation is a little bit more of a long-term one, but uh, typically what happens in a country that's been sanctioned under a broad program is you see a significant reduction in investment. Uh, economic operators are pessimistic about the future. They are facing a lot of cost pressures themselves. They're not investing in new capacity. And certainly in Iran, we've had about a decade of underinvestment. And the consequence of this in the long run is that obviously demand continues to grow. You continue to have, let's say, uh, dynamics like population growth, or you continue to have consumers wanting new uh, goods and services in the market, which is perfectly normal. But the underlying economic infrastructure hasn't kept up. The country has not invested in new infrastructure, new manufacturing capacity. And I guess as a final point, you know, I would hope that some of this sounds familiar to your listeners because these are many of the same drivers of inflation that have contributed to the higher rates of inflation that we're seeing in Europe and the US, uh, in particular after the COVID-19 crisis. We're hearing about supply chain disruptions, we're hearing about ongoing kind of ripple effects in the economy, and we're hearing about the need to invest in new manufacturing capacity. Well, the idea here is that sanctions create these same kinds of problems at a systemic level on a long-term basis as a matter of U.S. policy, U.S. foreign policy. Right. And, and to drive that point home, one of the things that I thought was really important about the, the paper that you did uh, and, and some of the write-ups about it that you've done since uh, is to, to make the point that this is not sort of an accidental result of sanctions. This is something that is, is baked into the, the policy. It's by design, right? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think this is one of the interesting things about how policymakers and politicians, particularly in Washington, approach sanctions is that they they 
at, at the moment, have the ability to be selective about what sanctions impacts they want to own as things that they see as deliberate and intended and what impacts they want to ignore or treat as unintended. And inflation, I think the focus on inflation and the way I try and present it in the case study is um, largely about trying to create some accountability for the decisions that are being made uh, when the U.S. imposes these large programs. So conceptualizing of inflation as something that's being weaponized uh, does two things. One, it uh, calls attention to the mechanisms by which U.S. sanctions actually interfere with um, the, uh, let's say, essential trade in food and medicine that Technically speaking, U.S. sanctions consider exempt and U.S. policymakers insist are not intended to be uh, subject to sanctions and interfered with because of sanctions programs. But in reality, although goods may remain available in a target country, one of the distinctions I draw looking at inflation is that those goods may not be affordable. So food and medicine continues to flow to countries like Iran under sanctions programs, but for many Iranians, millions of households, we're talking about a situation where things they used to be able to afford, they can no longer afford. So it's about recognizing those mechanisms. And then related to that, the conception of inflation as something that is a kind of weapon is about trying to put some onus on policymakers and politicians to understand that um, although sanctions may feel like a relatively low cost, easy thing uh, to sort of choose from the policy toolkit when you have a, a, a situation where the U.S. feels that it needs to have a robust response, that is a misconception or the idea that sanctions should are an easy choice uh, needs to be kind of uh, questioned because at the end of the day, these are highly consequential decisions, um, not only from the standpoint of U.S. foreign policy, because I think the evidence is clear that actually imposing sanctions in many ways make, makes future diplomacy more difficult. But certainly from at any level at which we believe that U.S. policymakers genuinely uh, want to avoid causing humanitarian harm to ordinary people in the target country. And there's some ambiguity about that belief, but I'd like to believe that that's actually something that's important in Washington. Then um, we shouldn't be so cavalier about the use of sanctions. Definitely. Um, I, of course, I agree entirely with that. Um, one of the things you point out uh, in the paper is that uh, as a result of the, the high inflation created by the, the sanctions pressure, uh, that leads to a, a marked increase in poverty in Iran. And, the, and we also see these effects in other cases. Uh, and, and this is because of the, the attack on people's purchasing power, right? And one of the principal causes of modern famines is the collapse of purchasing power so that, as you were saying, food may be available, but people can't actually get it. Uh, and we're, we're seeing that case uh, in Afghanistan as well. You addressed that in a foreign affairs piece uh, that came out a few weeks ago. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how the same effect is uh, uh, causing problems in Afghanistan and, and contributing to the, the danger of mass starvation there? Uh, and, and what would you recommend the Biden administration to do about that? So the Afghanistan case is, has been a really interesting one because, you know, when the U.S. made the decision in August, shortly in advance of the uh, Taliban takeover of Kabul to freeze uh, the uh, Afghanistan's foreign exchange reserves, 
um, there was immediately, uh, you know, warning flags raised by people involved in the uh, in aid operations in the country or involved in essential services in the country that taking such a step could lead to a significant pressure on again, food supply chains and the banking system and the interrelationship between the two. And here we are, you know, basically six months on and we are still sort of equivocating over whether or not the U.S. Uh, has some responsibility to, for example, ease access to those foreign exchange reserves in order to try and um, prevent this ongoing humanitarian crisis from getting worse. And what's interesting is that in August, I was a little bit optimistic. I thought that, you know, some of the folks that were following this issue, particularly people who'd worked on the humanitarian uh, harms of sanctions, were able to point to the freezing of Iran's foreign exchange reserves to say, look, we know that this is going to be problematic because over the last few years, we have seen humanitarian harms mount in Iran, a country with a far more functional central government and economy than Afghanistan, simply because we are making um, the money that is used to purchase and import uh, food and medicine harder to access for government institutions and for the banking sector at large. And even though that precedent was there, that evidence was there, uh, the Treasury Department still you know, made that decision to freeze the uh, reserves and uh, continues to kind of, you know, basically has continued to um, hesitate in taking a more dramatic step to allow the Taliban to use those resources to kind of meet their obligations as, for better or worse, the new central government in Afghanistan. And so I think what what I'm seeing and, and I'm hopeful that, you know, we can try and do for those of us working on sanctions is uh, to stop kind of looking at these cases in isolation and look at them as, you know, and look at the patterns that are emerging between uh, the Iran sanctions program, Syria sanctions program, Venezuela, Cuba, uh, increasingly Afghanistan, and then to be able to say, look, obviously what's happening here um, in terms of the humanitarian harms are not um, entirely or even mostly, uh, you know, related to the unique weaknesses of the governments in these countries or the unique kind of issues such as corruption um, or, or you know, import dependence or whatever it might be that we can say are related to the characteristics of these economies. But we can say that the reason that we're seeing all of this happen in these different cases is because of the common feature, which is U.S. policy and the inability of uh, key institutions in the U.S. and, the, for example, the State Department, the Treasury Department to uh, act proactively to mitigate humanitarian harms before they appear. So why was it, you know, why the decision to freeze the Taliban assets in August, why was there no parallel effort made to maintain access to that liquidity to avoid the humanitarian harms that at that very moment we knew were likely to result? And the reality is that we neither have the mechanisms in the U.S. government to do that, unfortunately, at the moment, nor does it appear that we have a lot of the political will, because there is still this idea that even 
if a proactive measure is being taken to mitigate humanitarian harms, it's still seen as some kind of carrot given to the target government rather than as some kind of um, just like obvious uh, step taken for the U.S. to meet its own obligations to act humanely in the pursuit of some foreign policy goal. Thank you, Espanyar, for coming on. I, I, I'm really enjoying this because uh, it's nice to have somebody on the show who has done the amount of research on sanctions and their impact on target countries as you have. And I have a bunch of questions, and I know we don't have a ton of time. I think uh, going back to your paper and the study of uh, inflation and the sanctions, is there any way, I mean, you suggest in the paper um, that there, you know, this question of intention and non-intention, uh, but still coming to the same uh, inflationary outcome, is there any way to even avoid uh, in the outcome of inflation when it seems like all the conditions are are set by the tools themselves, by the mechanisms themselves? It's an excellent question, and uh, it's kind of funny because, you know, I was hoping with the case study to at least point at this problem that needs to be addressed. And although I do offer some kind of very rough ideas of what kind of policy solutions might look like, I'm desperately hoping that someone smarter comes along and actually solves this problem with some real, um, real detail on the mechanisms. But you know, broadly speaking, I think there are things that the U.S. government can do. And what's been interesting for me over the last couple of years is that there has been this, uh, you know, significant and important amount of focus given to the humanitarian harms of sanctions on Iran and other countries in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. And because of the pandemic and the way it, it sort of um uh, sort of occurred in different places, uh, there were there there was this kind of clarifying moment where we did start to see some discussion around things like maintaining supply chains in countries that are under sanctions. So in the case of Iran, there was a lot of talk about uh, Iran having difficulty in the early part of the pandemic bringing in uh, PPE to protect its medical frontline workers um, from the pandemic. And then, of course, later, Iran and other countries, there were significant uh, conversations around you know, uh, getting them access to vaccines and the supply chains that are involved there. And that being said, you know, the the Biden administration, first the Trump administration, then the Biden administration really didn't take any significant steps to address those problems. So there was some lip service given to um, special financial channels, uh, for example, a mechanism called the Swiss Humanitarian Trade Arrangement that was intended to address the second driver of sanctions uh, of inflation that I point to in, in my case study, uh, which is this um, lack of banks willing to process transactions. And the idea of this arrangement was that the U.S. government uh, working with the Swiss government that wanted to put this in place because uh, the export of pharmaceutical products is a major part of Swiss trade with Iran, was to identify a bank, <clears throat> give them a framework to conduct trade in a compliant manner, 
have some oversight over who's using that channel, but ultimately to get more transactions going uh, through that trade arrangement. But it was never implemented uh, by the Trump administration, never really became operational aside from one or two kind of pilot transactions. And that really comes down to the fact that there wasn't, I think, political will. um, And there also wasn't political will to take the steps that Iran was requesting to ensure that this was a robust enough channel that they could count on it, that it was something that they should buy into as a mechanism established by the U.S. under sort of this period of maximum pressure sanctions. So the point, the reason I raise that is to suggest that um, it is not the case that U.S. officials have never talked about coming up with innovative solutions to deal with these harms. They have. And I'd also point out that a lot of the folks that are in the Biden administration now in key roles around sanctions policy were very vocal during the Trump administration writing publicly about the need for steps to be taken to ease Uh, humanitarian trade with Iran and other countries in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. And they called for things like much more liberal use of comfort letters to provide economic operators clarity that um, the trade that they wanted to do with a sanctioned country was permissible. Now that these uh, folks are in, in administration, in roles where they might be able to have that influence, we haven't seen these steps being taken. The administration has undertaken a sanctions review, kind of looking at sanctions policy overall. One of the five, I think, steps in that review was basically focused on addressing humanitarian harms, but it has yet to sort of translate into actual policy innovation. So I think that's, we need to at least admit that that's a a goal, have the political capital you know, and commitment to actually try and come up with these solutions and experiment and work with partners. And then we might start to tinker around and get uh, some solutions in place. But um, yeah, I mean, to be fair, the the ideas I share in the case study are, are very general and are basically about easing access to foreign exchange reserves, giving banks more clarity um, so that they can engage in transactions and just generally being proactive rather than reactive about these problems. And I know we're pretty much out of time, but I I have to ask this question. After all the research that you've done, everything you know about the sanctions and their impact, do you really think that sanctions are an effective foreign policy tool to get target countries to modify their behavior? Because we've spent the last 20 minutes talking about how we can ease the impact on, on the humanitarian sector, but I'm not hearing that these sanctions actually work for the ultimate goals that the United States has. So this is a fraught question because, you know, the, you know, realistically sanctions are going to be part of the U S foreign policy toolkit from now on. I mean, I think it's very unlikely that, you know, we see a significant rollback in, in how often sanctions are used and there has been this very long effort to come up with smart sanctions. I mean, you you go back 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and a lot of these problems had already been identified, raised with policymakers. There's you know papers written about it, and we still don't have a lot of solutions. And in the meantime, sanctions have become more complicated, more intensified, more financialized, and the global economy is more complex as a result. So I think the way I would answer that question is to say that I am. I certainly do not believe 
that the way sanctions are currently used by uh, particularly by U.S. policymakers is effective. And um, but at the same time, I am very unclear on what standard we are actually measuring efficacy. So and that's part of the problem here. Um, some of some U.S. policymakers genuinely believe that sanctions are meant to be used to cause maximum economic hardship, essentially to foment revolution in the countries in which uh, they are being uh, imposed at the very least to create so much domestic political unrest that that becomes the pressure point for the targeted government. There are other U.S. officials that would disavow that as a goal and claim instead that the purpose of sanctions is to create a coercive impact. We're causing economic pain to make the target country question its behaviors. Is it really worth it for them to continue some uh, policy that the U.S. considers to be a threat or a bad behavior? And other U.S. officials, I think, have committed to neither of those two views and are really of the mind that uh, the goal of sanctions is just to do something, that it is at a time when your credibility is on the line because the U.S. has not had some robust response to a, an incident in the global arena, something has to be done. And so it seems that the easy option is to go with this tool called sanctions, which at least right now appears to have no domestic political ramifications. You, you are never punished for advocating for sanctions uh, as a U.S. politician. And I think that's the other aspect here. So all this to say that, you know, I don't think that they're effective, but I also don't know how we judge whether or not they are effective, because I think everyone has different goals and we're running around without having a very uh, rigorous or sophisticated conversation about what these tools are, what they're intended to achieve, and um, whether or not they are actually advancing uh, U.S. national security interests as they ought to be conceived. That's a, a great place to end it. Uh, thank you so much, Yar. I would appreciate having you on Yar Butman Gellidge. Uh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.